This is the Lazy Women Podcast. Welcome back, ladies, to another episode of the Lazy Woman Podcast. My name is Aizada, and today I'm here to interview Alice Capel and talk about her new book, Collapse Feminism. Before we go on, I want to introduce myself a little. I have uh, hosted another episode before on uh, friendships and reimagining of kinships. I am a socially engaged researcher born and raised in Kazakhstan, and I'm currently doing my PhD in sociology in the U.S. I study gender and culture, which made me particularly interested in Alice's book and also in Alice's work in general. Alice is a writer from France who is known for her critical video essays on YouTube that have accumulated more than 10 million views. 15 million. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. Like they, they put the we picked that number a while ago and since then it's been like always a little bit, you know, my pride is like I, I need to state it. It's more than that. Yeah. <laughs> But it's okay. It's okay. It's also uh, a very, very much gendered thing to always have to like feel maybe apologetic about uh, correcting people about, you know, like your credentials and the actual uh, fruits of your labor. I understand that whenever people tell me like, oh, you um My friends introduced me as an expert of gender studies. I always say, oh, no. And they say, you have mm. a literal degree. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, yes, 15 million views. And the number is going to keep on growing, hopefully. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there's going to be um, more books, like fingers crossed. We're, we're here for it. Um, yeah. So I'm going to introduce the book um, I kind of uh, as the way I read it. And I'm very curious to see whether you agree with it and whether there's something that you also want our readers to kind of understand about your book. So I personally read it as in this exploration of discourses surrounding gender, sexuality and feminism that are happening online. And I saw the way you try to connect them back to very uh, established sociological and gender series and studies on sexuality and gender to kind of showcase how the internet culture is a key part of the way we now as a society shape ideas around respectable behavior, gender expression, gender binary, relationship values. So for me, the book is a good bridge between the internet culture, the internet phenomena, with some of the more complex theories and ideas about feminism and about gender. Um, so I wanted to see whether you agree with my interpretation of the book or is there something I also missed? No, I totally agree. And I love the way you put it because it's exactly the my goal with this book. It was to, you know, like, because YouTubers do get some opportunities to write books because we have an audience. So for publishers, like, it's a good deal. You know, they know that fans are gonna buy the book, etc. So my goal with this book was very much to not just do a YouTuber book, not just talk about what happens on social media, but still kind of use my expertise. <laughs> I don't have a YouTube degree, but, you know, like, uh, I've been there for quite a while. So use my expertise, use my knowledge of social media, but also internet cultures, etc. to bring that in conversations around, um, you know, feminism, contemporary feminism, all those uh, conversations around femininity, masculinity, gender norms, etc. So I think you you put it very well. And I, I wouldn't have to, I don't feel like I need to add anything else, really. Okay, I'm, I'm very happy about that. 
I feel like it, it is an extremely important thing to do to connect the contemporary culture to some of their larger ideas and also to remind people that those ideas do not exist in a vacuum and they're very much connected in the context of different series and even scholarship. As someone who is in academia, I completely recognize that academia is a very removed sphere that is that prides itself on gatekeeping and like um, sort of uh, making knowledge more inaccessible. And I think uh, what lazy women do with kind of uh, more like a sharp cultural analysis, what you do in your video essays by bringing people closer to those ideas, it's a very important work because it allows us to see the way our ideas and our knowledge about feminism, gender, and sexuality, they matter not only just in books, but actually in everyday practices whenever we open our phones or like our laptops and we go on the internet. Mm. No, no, it's it's so true. And, um, you know, with this book, I really wanted to, to show that the internet, what happens on social media, etc., can be a valid source for research. Like, you can use it as, as sources. Because when you look at the way the internet, social media is described uh, online or in journalism, etc. It's a, it's a section in itself. It's like social media or digital culture. But it would be so interesting, and it's starting to to happen more and more thanks to video essays, thanks to uh, online analysts. We need to include it in every topic we talk about, you know. Because, uh, and I realized it even more when I was doing the research for this book. It's like how how much social media, but also all those internet cultures, etc., shape the way people think and the way they forge their identities as well. So it's like, if you don't understand how it works, or if you don't really understand like the, the power it has on people's life, or if you only consider it as like this sort of fun little side thing that young people like, well, you, you really missed the point, you know, like you really missed something big. And um, I feel like we're going to regret it in like 10 or 20 years time, because I feel like, you know, even politicians, you, you, you can tell like some will invest and some will spend time understanding how social media work. And it's always very, very beneficial for them. You can see it like in election results and stuff like that. And others are kind of, you know, skeptical. They don't feel like it's legitimate to go on there. And then you'll see it in the election results as well. So I feel like, yeah, we, we very much need to legitimize uh, social media, internet culture, whatever happens on, on the internet as something valid, something that we can work on or work with. Mm -hmm. So one of the, I guess, the key term that also serves as the title of your book is Collapse Feminism, where you describe it as a way of uh, finding hope in time of political, economic and social crisis. And it is very much also related to the way people interact with each other on the internet. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about what is collapse feminism to you and why do you think it was important for you to coin this term and to put it as the center of your work? Yeah, so I remember like the first time I talked about uh, the, the title of my book, people thought that it was like, oh, do you mean like it's the collapse of feminism? This is the end of feminism? And I was like, no, no, it's the other way around. I know it sounds a bit clickbait, as we say on the internet, like you got to find those like nice, you know, concepts and stuff like that. So I felt like collapse feminism was something that was quite uh, catchy, but it very much started with just this recognition that the way we think, the way we write, the way we theorize is very much... Um, through this framework of collapse of the end of civilization is approaching and therefore we're all sad and pessimistic and um, 
I wanted to look at what that framework, uh, how it kind of shapes feminism, for example, like so, or just like what happens on social media in general. I mean, my book is focused on feminism. So in my case, it was more like how that sort of framework um, will allow conservative ideas to develop. Because when you can't project yourself, when you can't imagine a future, then you're more likely to turn in on yourself. And that means, you know, um, family, um, a few friends, no friends at all, just, you know, going back to those very like traditional ways of being and doing because that's what we know, that's what feels safe. And so the entire book is also about that. Like that's a, I guess that would be like the, the thesis, obviously. Um, how that framework, how this vision of society, our, our struggle to imagine a positive future is also the reason why like all those conservatives ideas uh, develop. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting how you said the the phrase the end of civilization and uh, what I also what I thought about when I was reading the book um, and you also bring it up uh, later on in the later chapters the idea of uh, decolonial feminism and the critique of the idea of civilization because the the whole book you you make it very clear that it is rooted in Western discourses and um, also the proliferation of certain ideas by specific figures in Western Europe, in the US, etc. So when I was reading the idea of uh, collapse feminism, it reminded me in some way the idea of decolonial feminism and the way it argues for the um in the end of uh, gender and sexuality as a binary especially imposed by western civilization and i just wanted i was curious to see if you f- if you see any intersections between collapse feminism and decolonial feminism or any other current branches of feminism out there yeah totally when you really think about it the the, the rhetoric of collapse uh, destitution loss is very, very often pushed by the powerful. So we've seen it with Trump's campaign. It was entirely based on this idea of fear of losing, the fear of losing our land, our culture, etc. Um, in the book, I also talk about the, the manosphere, which is uh, this sort of uh, ecosystem of a bunch of groups of men, uh, men's activists, or, or just men who uh, share misogynistic views or sexist views, etc., Again, it's a topic that comes back, you know, the, the, the idea of collapse, so like a, a loss of masculinity, the, a, a society that is becoming more and more feminine. So this idea of loss is always pushed by the powerful. And so that's why I wanted to turn it upside down and like look at the people who refuse to adopt this approach of loss because their existence just depends on the fact that, on, on the hope that tomorrow will get better. So that's where I try to seek inspiration. And as you said, like, uh, most of my analyses are based on Western uh, media, Western contents, but that's why I didn't want just to stop at criticism, but also go beyond and connect to uh, feminist ideas, theories, etc. And decolonial feminism is is one of those ideas that I found very inspiring because of how, again, like it, it dissenters from the, this idea of collapse that is so predominant in the West, and also it offers. So many different options, so many ways of looking at the world, at looking at how we interact with with nature, with the living, etc. So it was clearly a source of, of um, inspiration, especially when I talk about the, this concept of choice feminism 
Um, so basically, choice feminism is this idea that has become extremely popular, which is like um, um, any choice that a woman makes is is feminist because she decided to do so. And so th- this is on this basis that a lot of conservative feminists will say, well, no, I'm a feminist because I choose to be a housewife or I choose to do this, I choose to do that. But the, the, the issue with that is... It, what I mean is that the, the response uh, feminists tend to or tended to have to this sort of uh, vision of, of feminism is that, no, there is this way of being a feminist and not this way. So you can't be a feminist and a housewife or you can't be a feminist and wear heels, you know. And decolonial feminism is very interesting for, for that to kind of navigate this sort of discussion because decolonial feminism very much points at the fact that there is not one feminism or there is no, we shouldn't have this sort of hierarchy uh, between what is feminist, what is not. And when we look at the way feminism uh, used to be and still is in some ways, um, a movement that was mostly led by white middle class uh, women, it used to have this very like authoritative tone. Um, this is what feminism is supposed to be. No, remove that headscarf or uh, no, what is that? Uh, hypersexualization, you know, that we could, we still hear it uh, now, you know, with like music videos, hypersexual music videos, like, no, they, this is not feminism or blah, blah, blah. So all those ideas combined, like, help me uh, figure out a way or a path to approach this uh, concept of choice feminism. Like, how can we ensure that every woman is respected, that her choices are respected, but at the same time, like, not stop right there you know because if you just say it's my choice and therefore that's it you can't you have to respect it then you know we can't move forward as as feminists so the idea i put forward in the book is that um we have to recognize respect women's choices but at the same time understand that choice is a medium towards liberation but not necessarily liberation and that sort of you know reasoning was allowed like that it is because like i understood what uh, decolonial feminism was and i kind of took separated myself from uh, more Western, let's say, uh, feminist uh, theories or or individuals, you know. Yeah, definitely. I think the mainstreaming of feminism that we have been seeing in the last, I would say, maybe 10 to five years or like 15 years, it's very hard to grasp, I feel like, because also we've been... Um, growing up and coming of age at the time when people's attitudes towards feminism in mainstream cultures have been changing so dramatically if before it was a word that you had to kind of go and look for in specific books in specific parts of the internet now it is largely mainstreamed uh, everywhere you see figures such as Beyonce standing against a giant banner saying feminist mm-hmm. and um, you see like CEOs of uh, Facebook saying how we should just lean in and um, do everything because we're a woman and we can have whatever we want. And you're absolutely right that the idea of choice has become um, almost an, an activism in itself. And you're also absolutely right in saying that we should maybe stop and think whether or not just having a choice counts as a liberation in itself. So when I was reading the, this part about how you described the this process of how the culture of misogyny and the system of oppression of women tend to adapt to mainstream cultures. They they become co-opted by neoliberalism and uh, they become co-opted by uh, capitalist consumption. And this way, feminism almost becomes 
uh, depending on who interacts with it, it can become stripped of its core ideas or maybe of its core um, dedications to liberation. And it, um, it reminded me of the idea of uh, hegemonic femininity, which is something I wrote extensively in my own research, and uh, which is based on the uh, this Italian Marxist scholar Antonia Gramsci's idea of cultural hegemony, which is, if I had to summarize it in a couple of words, uh, how the powerful come up with certain ideologies to keep the powerless in check and to keep them in this um, subservient position. And so hegemonic femininity is theorized to always be in a subservient and subordinate position to masculinity. And but it was always theorized as there's a single idea of femininity that is desirable, that is acceptable. However, today, as we see in your book, there are so many ways to be feminine, to be feminist, to go viral uh, on social media, to translate yourself as kind of like the ideal woman. And I was wondering if you, like, what do you think? Do we still have this singular idea of uh, des desirable hegemonic femininity? Or do you think at this point there are just too many ideas and too many discourses? Or perhaps do they still have certain core components present for it to become mainstream? No, it's such a good, a good question. Um, yeah, as you said, like I try to show in the book, like the many ways or the many cultures, aesthetics that women can subscribe to. And it feels, it feels like you are being... Uh, uniquely yourself and like I mean that's how it's sold as well it's like oh yeah new new aesthetic new me and blah 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 so it's like oh yeah I can be that girl I can be a girl boss or I can be a divine feminine icon or whatever but all those options are you know very coherent with the the goal of you know trying to fit everybody in their little box but like in the end like it's just part of a one big box you know like the something I realized that I was researching and everything is there's something that has become very controversial in feminist conversations. I mean, men, in mainstream uh, feminist conversation, it's the notion of, of the family. So when you look at all those uh, subcultures, there will never, like, at the end, like, the, 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 the goal is still to remain, like, girlfriend material, wife material, to, to go back to your role as a mother. So the... It is feminist in terms of it is empowering and in empowering you have power. So it's like we we keep this notion of power, but in the end, like the, the woman has to go back to her place, you know. And so in the book Lean In, for example, written by uh, Sherry Sandberg, who um, used to be a COO at uh, Facebook, she talks about, yeah, like uh, giving your full potential, like, get, you know, like uh, raising your hand, standing up, uh, speaking during meetings and not like being all shy and blah, blah, blah. Like she, she puts a lot of responsibility on, on women for not being able to reach those top positions. But there is this thing at some point where she's like, but don't forget to, you, you know, you have to have babies at some point. And she doesn't necessarily say you have to have babies, but it's just like, you know, you, you have to subconsciously. So you're going to have to work out your career depending on that and blah, blah, blah. So there's always this movement back to the family. And it, it, is, it has become very difficult to, to talk about, you know, question the family or, or as a structure. Um, so I guess that, that that would be one thing that makes me think that despite the, you know, like the all those uh, aesthetics, all those subcultures, uh, female-dominated subcultures, there is still like this hegemonic femininity, this idea that a woman um, is uh, useful, valuable when she has babies and in a capitalist, 
capitalist society when she works. And so I talk about like this this binary that we can't manage to escape uh, somehow. You know, like we there was this rise of feminism as you as you mentioned, like mainstream feminism. Beyonce saying she's a feminist, Miley Cyrus saying she she's the biggest feminist uh, of the world. I can't remember exactly what she said, which could be fair. Like we could say it was positive in a way because it kind of destigmatized uh, feminism, but as it destigmatized it, it also completely depoliticized it. So just to circle back to what I was saying earlier, it's just like this idea of empowerment. It's like, you know, like now Simone de Beauvoir like can be read through a neoliberal lens because Simone de Beauvoir was all about choices and like uh, deciding for yourself. And it's like, Simone de Beauvoir was not just about that, you know, like the, it was highly political and she, it's, it's very interesting to me, like how, yeah, this notion of the family, radicalism, even the notion of radicalism, you know, like when we say radical feminist now, we usually we refer to uh, TERFs, so like women who, I mean, are feminists, should we call them feminists, um, who uh, refuse to include uh, trans women in their feminism. Is this really radical feminism? You know, so it, it is kind of frustrating to, to see how feminism has evolved. But again, I feel like things are slowly changing, especially with the younger generation where I feel like the notion of class, for example, is like slowly, very, very slowly re-entering the, the discourse precisely because women don't feel liberated or happy at work or uh, in their lives in general. So, I mean, in the book, I, was, I talk about like the, you know, like uh, how conservatives kind of use that, 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 that frustration that women feel to, you know, bring them towards conservative values and, oh yeah, go back to the kitchen because if you're not happy at work, then you need to go back to the kitchen and fulfill your natural duties. But at the same time, and they are quite powerful at doing that and it works quite well. But at the same time, like I feel like slowly maybe we, we you know, it's always this idea of like not falling for collapse and like remaining optimistic. I feel like um, new discussions are emerging and maybe maybe it could like bring some some new interesting things uh, to to feminism but we'll see we'll see how it goes it's uh, definitely an ever evolving subject and sometimes i i find myself also feeling almost lost you know the in the feminist movement as it is right now and many of its branches and corners so i i completely understand how it's it is a no small task to kind of try to categorize and analyze the the feminist online discourses in a book i imagine it was a very tough thing to approach and very intimidating too um i want to go back to some of the things that you uh even mentioned uh just now the idea of going back to your natural duties to your natural way of being uh the idea of nature going back to the um traditional, normal, quote-unquote, expression of gender and sexuality um, is uh, very prominent uh, throughout your book. Like you go back to it time and time again to showcase that it is has become uh, this key part of uh, divine femininity, of alpha male ideas that have been uh, taken by conservative influencers uh, and activists. So they constantly try to fall back on the idea that something is natural and therefore it's something that we all should adapt and not question, not uh, critique. Uh, however, in the book, you uh, accurately fact check a lot of those claims and bring to our attention that um, those conservative 
uh, individuals tend to oversimplify the idea of what constitutes natural behavior. So I was wondering if you can speak more on the role of nature in this whole conservative backlash to gender. Mm. So I think this whole like thinking of reflection that I had was um, started with the fact that I was looking back at older influencers or vloggers that I used to watch when I was a teen and realized that a lot of them had become like very traditional, extra feminine in their way of of, of looking, etc. So I was like, wow, what is happening there? And they were talking about, yeah, going back to nature or like embracing their femininity, divine femininity, or like, uh, you know, they were like, oh, feminism is bad. Feminism like wants to change the way women are supposed to be. So that's when I was like, okay, is there something going on there? And then, you know, they, on, in terms of like uh, on the internet, there was this trend of um, cottage core, which is like, embracing the the cottage life in the mountains and uh you know wearing long dresses and like having picnics and like being surrounded by goats etc so there definitely is an appeal for uh simpler ways of of being of living especially after covid especially because a lot of us are burned out and like we can't we can't stand our jobs anymore so we just want to you know escape in the countryside um but the issue is that, and, and a content creator that, that I follow very well pointed it out, um, the issue is that uh, those this need to go back to a simpler way of living, etc., has been appropriated by by conservatives. So, for example, like, um, so um, uh, the, the creator I was talking, I was mentioning, um, they looked at how cottage core, hashtag cottage core, hashtag cottage life, etc., progressively uh, brought people towards different type of hashtags, hashtags like uh, trad wife, traditional living, traditional gender roles. So she kind of showed how um, those, those desire for a simpler life can lead you to like trad wife content or traditional living. And that's where things get a little bit dangerous, you know, because um, as you said, like um, these things are portrayed as what is natural, therefore what is simple, what makes sense. But does it really, you know, like how many people have suffered because of those very traditional, uh, very strict norms? You know, how many people have died if we want to be like that, you know, I mean, realistic, <laughs> actually. So it's it, it was interesting to me to kind of look at, you know, what do they mean by natural? What do they mean by, and is it that natural? Or are we trying to impose like the same old like norms onto people? I was looking as well, like... um because we're talking about like the feminine side, but even on the, the masculine side, you know, like this this growth of like um, um, uh, camps where they will uh, help men just meet in camps and they, summer camps or whatever, and they will like uh, develop their masculinity, like reconnect with their masculinity and they just put themselves naked, they go like uh, swim together and it's just very funny to watch. And uh, um, but again, like, it, it makes me laugh, but at the same time, like, I feel kind of bad because I'm like, God damn it. Like, people people are really desperate. And it, it's it's sad that these, these like, summer camps for, like, reconnecting with your masculinity or women do that too, you know, like, the sort of finding the power of the womb type of uh, seminars or, like, uh, camps as well. It's like, God damn it, people really crave community, but why do they have to go to those things? And also, like, wonder why why can't we build, like, communities that don't have like those very strict you know like gender binaries so in the book i mentioned every now and then like i talk about my experience as a tennis instructor uh teaching kids but also like uh, adults and uh it, it was interesting to see like how 
adults like yeah they really like playing kids you know <laughs> and even myself like so it's like we need to find we need to recreate those places or those and lazy women for me is, is a good example of that um we need to to create those communities that aren't based on like super like essentialist and by essentialist we mean like the natural way of being or blah blah ways of being or like the so but but yeah like um i guess that, that would be my answer yeah, I also was thinking how it's so interesting the way that it seems like this going back to natural ways of being has become popularized. Yes, like during and the pandemic and I guess I don't I don't know if we're living in the post-pandemic world. Some people say we are, some people say not yet, but the pandemic has affected us dramatically in the way that we experience loneliness and especially that men reportedly have been experiencing loneliness and what has been coined as recession, uh, fr friendship recession. Mm. But at the same time, um, technology is to blame for a lot of those things. Uh, but as you mentioned just now, it is also a gateway, a pathway towards connecting people who, on the idea of uh, belonging, like wanting to go back to natural things. So technology and the internet kind of becomes this central figure where people want to run away from it to simpler times, but they rely on it to connect and to maybe exacerbate their views on natural ways of being and on gender and sexuality. So it's a very interesting like tension that I you kind of allude to in the book and I was wondering if you have anything more to say on the role of technology in all of this yeah no it is kind of difficult because you want you want to believe in the potential of the internet as a means to to connect people and it very much does like it very much connects people it creates communities and for especially for marginalized communities it was a good way for uh for for like for example like I, I grew up in the in the countryside and i was lucky because i didn't you know like i'm 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 straight and i i'm white etc so i was kind of like i was accepted in that community uh, even though i didn't feel like i belonged but um i the first time i had like for example like a black uh classmate i think he was in high school and still it was like one guy and i think he was adopted so it's like for for those people who are uh, systematically marginalized, um, gr growing up or evolving in those communities, um, they feel very isolated, and the internet can be a way for them to to connect and to figure out their identity. I'm mostly thinking about more like uh, LGBTQ plus um, people who don't know it exists. Like how many times have I heard like friends from um, middle school or high school telling me like I actually didn't know I was queer or I was bi or I was a lesbian or whatever till I reached high school or university because before that I didn't even know it existed you know <laughs> I didn't even know it was a thing um, so it, it's it's so interesting to me and I think the internet can be a great tool to um, connect people and help them understand who they are but as you said like it can also be kind of the big issue with the internet is that it is profit-led you know it's it's meant to be it's based on ads it's meant to keep you engaged uh in the worst way possible it is not a it is becoming less and less a place for 
um, educational conversations, you know, because more and more, um, like, what is sensational is being pushed forward. What is educational is kind of, being, yeah, it's a bit boring. So, you know, we're not going to show that. So it's it's kind of hard for, for us, for those of us who believe that the internet can be a great tool for exploration, experimentation and education. Uh, we're kind of fighting against like a monster here. And all the people who... Uh, embrace the sensationalism uh, people who um and recently uh you know like uh, something i'm interested in as well is like how hate speech became entertainment and how people like for example andrew tate or you know like all those those uh, cultural figures that embrace hate speech um use it as often as they can do they really believe what they say and like sometimes i ask myself like do you this is absolutely insane what this person just said. And obviously, yeah, Andrew Tate is a sexist. I don't feel like we need to prove that. But I'm always wondering, like, do they, why do they do that? Why do they go to those extremes? And the the, the profit motivation, the, the profit incentive for me is so wrong because of it, it very much developed uh, hate speech. You know, it, it encourages it uh, in so many different ways and it bridges hate speech with entertainment. So I think it was, uh, yeah, Suzanne Faludi, um, the well-known feminist who said that misogyny is raw now. And she's right. And I think by saying that, she also shows that all the toxicity, the sensationalism, the hate speech that is fomenting on online and that is so connected to entertainment is also being, you know, like, it's not just online, like the way politicians talk, the way they, Trump is such a good example of that, uh, the way they talk, the way they use um, those very sensitive topics around like identity politics, etc., uh, is very telling of how social media and what works on social media um, is used as a source of inspiration by, uh, by politicians. Yet once again, we come back to the evil of capitalism and the evil of having everything to be for profit, especially um, I feel like since the internet has changed dramatically, I remember when I first accessed uh, the internet, maybe like very like early 2000s, and it seemed like there were so many websites you could go to, uh, but now we're basically just switch between three or four apps <laughs> that are all mm. extremely profit oriented and they that they capitalize on the sensationalisms and the hate speech so mm. yeah and it's it's insane too because it doesn't feel like we we we're trapped really because and um it's han uh, byung-shung han who who talked about like the digital panopticon where it feels like we're so free on those platforms because we can like we can comment we can uh, share, etc. So we have all the power. Uh, we have all the power of communications, you know. But at the same time, it's like, uh, and kind of to connect to where, when we were talking about like hegemonic uh, femininity, we have all the power to be what we want, to say what we want on the internet. But at the same time, like we also participate in reinforcing um, all those structures, whether it's patriarchy, capitalism, etc. Because by liking certain content, by engaging with certain content, we valorize this content. And because of the biases we have, the preconceptions we have about what it means to be a woman, uh, what it means to live in a capitalist society, etc., we will be more likely to validate people who, you know, follow the rules, who follow the norms. So, for example, when I, I talk about like this figure of, of that girl, that girl is like this this woman who has it, young woman who has it all figured out. She's super healthy, super productive, but she also very much takes care of herself. She looks very feminine, effortlessly feminine. And I wanted to show that it's not, because on the internet, we have this thing where we tend to 
criticize people, individuals. It's like, it's her, she's bad. That girl is bad because she promotes um, unachievable goals, etc. But at the same time, like, we created that girl. That was a video I did and I was very much inspired to kind of make a continuation of that in the book. We created her because we like her videos. We love the productivity, 5 a.m. morning routine type of stuff. So we all participate in that. And it feels like we are free. It feels like, I mean, it's it's all like, you know, this sort of subconscious, uh, su- those subconscious biases that, that manifest themselves in the what is being pushed forward and what is being light and what is being... Uh, what people engage with, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that helped me a lot in, I guess, processing the rise of the manosphere has been mm-hmm. finding out uh, that many uh, men have been positioning as masculinity being in crisis, or if to borrow from the book, like the idea of collapse of masculinity, it has been kind of proliferated uh, in Western media um, before. So like in the 19th century, in the 20th century. So they have been like always this ideas that men are not manly enough. Uh, There is something wrong about like the way that they do their, uh, that they perform their masculinity. So it almost made me feel like okay, maybe the rise of the manosphere, uh, the rise of Jordan Peterson's, Ben Shapiro's, Andrew Tate's, maybe it is just another step in this constant crisis of masculinity. However, as you point out in the book, now hate speech is for profit. Now misogyny is raw. So would you say that there is something particularly alarming about the manosphere and the rise of those individuals on the internet that we should be aware of. Mm. No, you're so you're so so right. And I did ask myself this question, you know, because on the internet you sh- you see the extremes, like because of how sensational um, they are. So it can be tempting to think, oh my gosh, like Andrew Tate is everywhere, and everybody will think like Andrew Tate. And look, like one million views on this video. <gasps> this is insane. But it's always good to take a step back and like. Uh, as we say on on the internet, like get out and touch grass, you know, and to figure out if what is going on on the internet, so what we call online discourse, is actually what happens in reality. But in the case of Andrew Tate, and we've seen it because we've seen like the the videos of teachers like saying, "Wow, like my kids talk about like Andrew Tate as if like the guy was legitimate," or like you know, like they they start to say like sexist things, but to connect back to 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 what we said earlier, it's yeah, this this the way hate speech becomes entertainment and now even kids, you know, they, they used to say, I don't know, like kids like to bully. So they 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 will always use something um to to hurt someone else. But like the fact that now hate speech, like blatant hate speech has become like their their currency, like the, that that's that's the way they, they want to hurt people. It's like it's it's pretty concerning. And yeah, as you said, like um when I was thinking about like, okay, is Andrew Tate like is it that alarming that this guy exists? And as you said, like they they've always been um a sort of manosphere or like they they've always been like um men's right activists, etc. But yeah, in, in this case, it's like recognizing that this is the extreme and that a lot of people who watch Andrew Tate won't necessarily like, you know, like all, do all the terrible things uh, he does. And I think we maybe we need to be a little bit better at that as well, like recognizing that 
there are people who are kind of drawn to this guy, not necessarily because he's sexist, but more because he looks good. I mean, he looks good too. <laughs> not to me, to be honest, but uh, to many men, like he looks good because okay, he's quite muscular. Um, you know, like he he looks very confident. He has uh, a bunch of big cars, etc. So like he ticks a lot of boxes, and that's why a lot of men are, are drawn to him. So that's also something I, I show in the book. It's how when we talk about people like Andrew Tate or the Manosphere, we have to connect it back to the entire industry of self-help, you know, because even in self-help, like it's especially like the self-help that it's directed to men. We tell guys, we tell boys that, yeah, you need to find an attractive woman. You need to have a big house. You need to be successful at your career. And it's not as outrageous as Andrew Tate. Like they won't be sexist or anything, but it's, it's there, you know, the message is there. They make sure that these are, what is expected of men. And then obviously you're going to have like the extreme Andrew Tate type, which are like symptomatic of that is there is something wrong. But at the same time, I feel like we should focus our attention more on like the, the you know, like the sort of mainstream self-help. Those guys, like the casual guys, good looking, uh, respectable guys that say, yeah, you, you got to find a good partner, like a, a woman that will potentially be a mother, etc. Like these, these are the people we should focus on, uh, I think. Yeah, one thing I have to say that I really enjoyed about your book is that you do connect the the rise of manosphere and uh, the rise of uh, this conservative uh, cultures of masculinity to self help, and you also connect it very closely to uh, the same the side of the other coin when it comes to femininity, like traditional like wife material, uh, divine femininity, because. Um, I am aware right now that there are a lot of uh, books and a lot of conversations being issued around the crisis of masculinity, around how men are feeling, and especially from um, from liberals too, like from American mm-hmm. liberals who come out with books and say, oh, like men are feeling lonely, they're being entrapped by this uh, conservative influencers and we should help them, we should like come up with a way to uh, basically yeah like assist them in in making sure we don't lose men to uh very like right wing ideas and um while i agree that we do we do function as a community and we have to take care of members of our community um it i was always a bit confused by the rhetoric that kind of almost once again places the responsibility of um rescuing men or maybe not rescuing them but more like being aware of their problem and adjusting our behavior as women in response to mm. the problem that men face so i i guess i wanted to ask you how do you see a pathway towards healing masculinity and what do what is the role of us as feminists in this um journey to try to find like I guess a way to heal masculinity that's not detrimental to our own our own well being. Mm. No, it's a great question and um, kind of challenging as well because like I do have friends who and I do respect that that say no, I'm just done with men. You know, like I I don't want to have to educate them on this or that. It's just like it's just so frustrating. It takes me a lot of time. A, a friend of mine, I won't say her name, but uh, she might recognize herself uh, if she listens to the podcast. Um, 
she she spent like so many years, you know, like helping a guy um, become a normal human being, let's say, uh, just a functioning human being. It's like, you know, like the I can change him. <laughs> um and like it's it's been like what four or five years and finally like she kind of she gave up and we were all very happy that she gave up yay girl boss <laughs> um but you know like so so i understand that sometimes like women will just say no i just don't want to do do the work um i'll continue to do it because i've had good experiences with with men as well or like men who were willing to change so i'm like I'm willing to put energy, time, and efforts um, with the with those guys, especially because I call myself a feminist and I call myself more than a feminist. I I like the phrase like I, I advocate for feminism more than I'm a feminist because I want uh, those values to spread. So I want to share them with other people, even if sometimes it puts me in uncomfortable situations or it has happened a time where I have to explain like very basic things to a group of men. I feel like I'm the I represent like all women in the world and it's like whew, such a burden and I grow out of those conversations feeling like I have zero energy because of like all the but anyway I, I will continue to do that and I feel like it's important to do that um, because as you said like we need to take care of, of the community but for me like of course like men have a lot of work to do uh, to kind of do the work by themselves as well you know so there's been a rise of healthy masculinity gurus which is very interesting and it shows like that aspect of masculinity can also be very profitable because like you know it's been it's been working quite well like we've seen like some influencers making a lot of money writing a bunch of books about that um so it's a profitable business too uh, but i guess my critique with uh the sort of healthy masculinity positive masculinity is that it's still framed around masculinity so it's always like going going back to gender expression and as you rightly mentioned like we see the same thing happening with femininity you know we talk about the crisis of masculinity in the book i said i'm afraid that someone is going to come up with the crisis of femininity actually a french uh, a french far right uh, activist came up with it recently so i was like oh no a prophecy it's coming to life <laughs> whatever um so yeah, like with the, I feel like it's important to dissenter from from gender. You know, like why do men have to forge themselves through masculinity, through gender expression? Same with women. Like when I look at myself, like when I grew up, I had a bunch of role models that were women, men, queer people potentially. Um, maybe I wasn't aware of it, but you know. Um, so you know, I took inspiration from so many different people, but I feel like for men, it's still kind of a taboo to look up to women or to have a woman as a role model, for example. And it's such a shame because like you can learn so many values about like just you know like getting like close to or just like having female friends as well. Like how many male friends or male guy I know, male male guy obviously <laughs> guys I know uh, that have barely any female friends, and part of that is also because. Oh no, you can't have female friends because like that means you want to date them, which is a whole other issue. Like the sort of straight culture, like you can't be friends with girls and guys can't be uh, friends with girls and vice versa. So many things to impact, really. But I guess yeah, the cool thing would be to dissenter from gender and to uh, forge ourselves in a way that uh, is more I don't know is is more open, is more fun, is more creative, is more less like constrained to those like again those very straight gender norms, you know. Yeah, absolutely agree. I um, I noticed that. So I teach uh, my undergrad uh, college students um, introduction to sociology, sociology of gender, all of those different things. 
And I did notice that whenever we start talking about gender, they always cite, um, I encourage them to cite cultural examples because I want them to connect to things that they see online. And so many of them, when they talk about positive masculinity, yeah, like they will come up with an example of hairstyles, wearing pearls, or mm. I think at some point he wore a skirt. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure uh, if I remember it correctly, but yeah, basically mentioning hairstyles, Timothy Chalamet, like um, like all those mm. men who um, actually, if you think about it, they're pretty closed off with, in terms of their. Um, when speaking about their gender expression, when speaking about sexuality, they are mostly do what they're mostly doing is that they are performing certain um, ideas of mm. uh, masculinity and certain ideas of like being androgynous, but they never really speak on that, not extensively and not politically. So uh, what I did is that I, for this uh, summer, when I was teaching sociology of gender, I offered one of your videos on positive masculinity as an additional source for my students to watch, because I did like the idea of um, decentering uh, and uh, from gender and trying to think about the way we can evolve as human beings. And um, I remember that one of my students wrote in their commentary, I absolutely do not agree with everything Alice Capel says, but she has some val valuable points in a in a regular vague manner that students mm. do. But uh, I think it's uh, interesting the way that just thinking about ourselves beyond gender represents a very radical idea to so many of us that maybe it is um, still hard to fully comprehend. Mm. Because we don't, we kind of lack, first of all, we lack representation of what that looks like. Because as you said, like, and I talk about that in the book, uh, the sort of um, positive masculinity or healthy masculinity as an aesthetic. And it's not because you adopt an aesthetic that you necessarily adopt the all the, the, the things that go with it. So it's true that, I mean, aesthetic have become... And not just like a positive masculinity, but like in the book, I talk about so many different aesthetics, uh, dark academia, e-girl, like all those very consumable aesthetic where you just have to buy the right amount of clothes. You just have to buy the right items. And then therefore you are that, you are that aesthetic. But again, like there's a big difference between cosplaying something and actually identifying or understanding even something. So in the book, I say that you, we never know, like Timothée Chalamet might be a fuckboy and it's, it's okay. Like it's a, it's it's potential like it could be the case but we don't know um so that's why i think that um role models are are, are important but um we shouldn't settle for that because what if the role models suddenly change you know what if they suddenly choose to adopt like sexist idea and they switch to an aesthetic that is like very like uh more that is more aligned with uh what we call toxic masculinity you know so basing your whole identity or basing your beliefs etc on like one person one role model is very wrong to me and that's why we need to again like go beyond gender go beyond those like individual representations of what is good and what is bad and instead like completely rethink like and as you said like going yeah going beyond that but again like we we need to we need to be helped like we we need to it can't be like a something that happens overnight so role models can be helpful but we we have to find something different and for that we need to be able to imagine as well which is not 
not easy when we all struggle to uh, imagine the future, you know, but I was talking about that with in another interview where we really went deep on like this notion of imagination and like how how we're lacking imagination and how alarming uh, it is, especially for, for the youth. Um, but we need to fight for it. Like, I know it's hard, but we do really need to fight for just imagining and like offering new options to people uh instead of like going back to because there've always been men who kind of perform like kind of challenge masculinity uh in culture Kurt Cobain uh, even Tupac to to some degree you know with all the leather and stuff like that like so it has always been the case but like it did not uh suffice to dismantle patriarchy so we need to find something else you know we need to find different options yes and i also really enjoyed how I saw a key message from the book is how you urge your readers to rethink the way they see friendships and uh, systems of care in their lives. Like what place do they give to platonic relationships and communities? And I think this is something that I've been actually actively thinking for the past three to four, four years. And I've been really, really trying to reimagine the idea of belonging, reimagine the idea of building a community outside of a nuclear monogamous, yes, heteropatriarchal mm. family. So much so that I uh, recorded a whole another episode for Lazy Woman about that. But I think the main uh, constraint for me in this journey of reimagination has been finding like-minded people in a way that if I am as a person trying to uh, find, find a new ways of belonging aside of nuclear family, it would be very hard for me to do so with my friends, who all of whom have uh, partners, uh, husbands, and traditional families. And uh, I think it's um, this is kind of where our imagination meets the realities of life, the realities of convenience, the realities of bureaucracies, visas, health insurances, etc., <laughs> uh, which weigh on us significantly, especially when we are uh, working class people, middle class, lower class people. <clears throat> so I was, <clears throat> and at the same time, I, I do see that you, you in the book, you seem to advocate of the idea of a, uh, connecting collapse feminism with uh, prioritizing friendships. So almost making perhaps a movement out of that. And I wanted to ask you, mm -hmm. how do you see this developing? Maybe to, to go back to something you said, which is so true and very important to state, um, how, as you said, like imagining something different or like uh, going beyond something that already exists is um, is a difficult task precisely because of all the constraints that are all the pressures we have on each other and I guess friendship is a good example of that like I've talked about many friends about this idea of prioritizing friendship and like you know like detaching ourselves from the, the nuclear family imperatives but again like as we get older we see more and more of our friends kind of you know, settling for for that ideal because it's stable because it's safe because that's what the parents did and therefore we know more or less how to do it and um, again, like to kind of expand on, on what you said, um, the, in, the, in the book, I very much talk about like how we, we tend to frame neoliberalism as this ideology that 
uh, destroys the family because with neoliberalism, women go to work and therefore they are more likely to divorce because they have like the financial independence. And then we have like dating apps that completely like uh, disrupt the, uh, the the way relationships are structured. So we always have this idea of like destruction, destruction, destruction. And that's Melinda Cooper. Like she wrote extensively on that, and I was very much inspired by her work when I uh, I delved into that topic. She she shows that neoliberalism cannot function without the family. So like. It might disrupt in some aspects, but the family will always come back. Uh, it has to conserve the family because in a capitalist society, the wealth has to be passed on to another generation, and you need that family to, you know, like to 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 pass on that 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 wealth. You know, um, so that was very interesting to me to to see how, in fact, like neoliberalism is still about like protecting the family, and it makes so much sense then when you look at what feminist uh, mainstream feminists, neoliberal feminists say. They comply with those ideals because they know that, you know, that's what they need. That's what uh, is expected from them, etc. Um, but to to go back to this idea of of, uh, of friendship, it is happening happening in some aspects. But those who can afford it, who those who can live um, in 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 that way, are usually the most privileged. So in the book, I give some examples of influencers who choose to prioritize, you know, like. Um, sorority, uh, being surrounded by sisters, etc., or a group of women who um, quit their job or like as they retired, like they um, moved to like a, a big house where they all live together. Unfortunately, like a lot of people can't really, can't really do that, you know? So at the moment, like this ideal of uh, prioritizing friendship, etc., is very much a middle class, upper middle class, progressive people ideal. But it has to change. And in order to make it change, we have to ensure that everybody has the mean to be able to put friendship first, you know, and not have to 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 kind of settle for more traditional ways of of living, not because not necessarily because they want to, but because they have to, because you have to pay the rent and you can't do it by yourself because uh, of this reason or because of that pressure or, you, you know, so it very much. And that's why we need to talk about class. Um when we talk about feminism and we need to bring back this notion of class um, in the conversation because feminism cannot exist without without a an understanding of class. And mainstream feminism at the moment doesn't really care. So we talk about like sexual violence, which is very important, but even the way we talk about sexual violence, it's like, I remember like recently I saw this very popular French um mainstream feminist and she was making a video about like the history of feminism which was like interesting for people who didn't really know about feminism but she concluding being like i feel like now feminism is about i don't know like do, do you feel like um we still need feminism do you feel like women still suffer like outside of like um you know catcalling and stuff like that and i was like how can she say that <laughs> how can she say that but the reason why she's able to say that is because she doesn't have that class perspective in mind. She only thinks about her experience as like a white, middle class, upper middle class, even a feminist. And yeah, for her, like she might get catcalled uh, when she goes like down the street to pick up like a petit pain and croissant and uh, whatever she wants to pick up. But it's, you know, so I think that that's something that we we need to be aware of. And I, I like the fact that you bring it up like this notion of, of class here. Yeah. This leads to one of my uh, final questions, which is the book is about bridging the gap between online trends and online communities and more political ideas and more tangible movements. As you mentioned uh, before, you do talk about a lot of different uh, 
trends, hashtags, movements within the internet culture. And I'm wondering that are we are we seeing how these online trends and online uh, narratives and communities are possibly transforming into something more tangible? And specifically, I'm asking this because um, you do make an argument that deprivatization of the internet is a very important a very important component that you see as for the future of more i guess egalitarian online communities so mm. do you see the deprivatization of the internet as a necessary thing that has to happen in order for online movements to become more political more tangible mm. i I do think so because, as we, I mean, as I said earlier, the the profit incentive is responsible for the spread of uh, hate speech because of hate speech uh, being connected to entertainment. So if we remove that profit incentive, I'm hoping that things would be different. That only people who truly believe like tr- are truly sexist or truly misogynistic and feel like they are so sexist that they need to make a video about it. Um, will do it and there will be you know at the the extreme and maybe not too many people will watch it or maybe they will but like you know it won't be as bad as like andrew tate and like all the other andrew tates that exist because there are plenty of them um so for me that's the only solution to kind of combat the sort of sensationalism but when i was writing that i was thinking okay because the left is about education so how can we create an internet where education is prioritized but again as i was talking about this idea with uh, other people um i was like maybe i'm like being a bit too um not necessarily elitist but you know people also want to have fun like we need to find a way to bring entertainment like and not just education because of course like we value education but you know we, we want to have fun too so it's an ideal internet would be one where yeah we we remove this profit incentive and even on the left i feel like it's not because we end up falling for this race of like uh, finding the new cool concept or like inventing a bunch of concepts or uh, removing all the value of like uh, academic concepts that like intersectionality i guess would be okay but like i'm trying to think of industrial complex or um you know angela davis she came up with it and then everybody started using this phrase like something industrial complex and it's like oh gosh it doesn't mean anything anymore and that's that's not fair especially for the all the academics who who worked on it etc so i guess yeah on both sides it would be it would be good to kind of remove this profit incentive but what would be what could we replace it with that's that's a good question and i'm not sure i have an answer but we can look at what already exists and like something like wikipedia which is clearly not very sexy or glamorous <laughs> i understand it i i knew it when i was writing i was like this is you could have find a better example because like wikipedia is not very sexy alice but um you know still like it's it's going back to this idea that the concept that created the internet as we know it is peer-to-peer collaboration so how one's contribution is going to be someone else is going to interact with someone else's contribution and maybe add something new to that and so there is this concept of the digital garden which i really like i find super cool and it's about like creating your own garden with a bunch of ideas and articles and research on this or that topic and then people can go and see it and like can uh, take inspiration from it and create their own garden so that's one way of um, doing the internet that i found very interesting very radical in in a way 
I'm thinking more and more about it because like I feel like it's an idea that needs more consideration but just like we're so used to the idea of the stream as well like the stream of content and we scroll like what if we completely got rid of that and they created something completely different you know that would be interesting too that would you know that that would change things or so there are many many things that we can think about um in terms of like what to do with the internet but yeah for me like deprivatization is 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 something that could really and i know it's like a bold like uh it's not gonna happen overnight for sure but we can work on on maybe um, at least like creating more and more uh, structures, etc., outside the big tech internet, uh, and kind of encourage people to engage more with with those things as well. Thank you. Um, I agree. It is it is a no small task, but at the same time, you have to also be bold in your ideas. And a, a book is a great place to start yes. <laughs> being bold with your ideas. And my my final question to kind of uh, take us back from um, a very serious conversation that we ended up having was uh, when I was reading your book, I was like, wow, that's, yeah, like that's a lot of work. And I was actually, mm. as, as someone who writes a lot, I was wondering, I wonder how this process went, like how, and also as someone who procrastinates a lot, I was wondering how mm. lazy can you be when you write the book? Like, how like how was the process like for you? Did you did you procrastinate a lot? Was it super easy? Please don't tell me it was super easy. <laughs> I did in two weeks. Like it's just like you know, no, 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 no. That's that's funny because like it reminds me like uh, every time I I talk with the the lazies, it's always like uh, something that comes back. It's like uh, we we embrace the fact that it's okay to be lazy and to you know, like, take a step back and, like, be aware of, like, all the work and, like, we put into. But at the same time, like, we're so passionate about what we do that we have this urge of, like, you know, like, uh, keep working, keep working, keep working. So I guess this book was kind of, it was one of those cases where I was, like, so passionate about what I was doing. Um, I lost some friends. No, I'm joking. I didn't lose any friend. But I guess, like, my sister is probably the person who suffered the most from uh, the whole process because, like, uh, I was back at home to to write the book because I wanted to be in that nice little, you know, as I said earlier, like, my my dad, he lives in the countryside. So I wanted to have, like, that sort of cottagecore uh, environment to, to write the book, uh, which was great. And my sister was there. So, like, like often go and see her and tell, ask her, like, oh, do you think this idea is cool or is it just me thinking I'm a genius? And, uh, and she would be like, oh, yeah, this is cool. Oh, no, this is not that interesting. Oh, did you think about this or that? And then I would run into my room to kind of note down, like, it was such an interesting uh, process, to be honest. First time, like, writing a book, I did write um, two, two master theses, um, but it was nothing compared to, like, a, a proper book and, like, something that I deeply, deeply cared about. Um, so, yeah, but was I lazy in the process? Uh, I guess I was kind of lazy for the first few months. Like, I remember it took me probably two months after signing the contract to properly start the whole thing because I was like, it's okay, I'll start later, I'll start later. It was sunny. Uh, it was like uh, spring. So, you know, I just wanted to relax a little bit. Um, but because of that, like, I had to rush. Um, there were a couple of months where, oh, gosh, I worked so, so much, so, so much on it. But again, like I'm really happy with what I did, and I feel like I I didn't burn out my burn myself out um, too much. But like when I signed uh, the contract for for the book, um, I was also applying to a quite a good uh, prestigious master's degree, and I was accepted to to that master's degree. So I was like, it's fine. I'll do the book, the master's degree, and the channel. And then my boyfriend at the time was like are you sure about that <laughs> so it's good like at least like I was lazy in the sense that I removed one of the 
you know, I removed the masters. I didn't do the masters. Um, but yeah, like, um, I'm, I'm sure you know this as well. It's like when, when you're passionate about something, it's kind of hard to, to, to stop yourself or to be like, hey, like, relax. It's, it's also a job. It's not just a passion. But because I've been doing YouTube for like four years, it's kind of, it's been kind of challenging to, to recognize that it's, it's a job. It's not just like a passion project and I need to treat it as a job as well. Um, and lazy women, to be fair, like the conversation we've had, uh, have kind of helped me as well in, in that process. Yes. Um, good for you for setting your priorities. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> yeah. And also because uh, when when you are someone who is self-employed and you work in, in the area where a lot of people are thinking like, oh, like, it's all about exposure. It's all about the cultural, social capital. It's uh, it's so hard to turn opportunities down and to think like, oh, like maybe I need this. Like maybe I need this master's to become mm. even more credible, or maybe I need it as a backup plan for like my my own thing. And I mm. I also like I tend to overload myself with work, and then I have to figure out, oh, like actually, we should be lazy sometimes, and we should maybe say no to some things yeah no 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 you're so right and you know like life is long i know we say like yolo and things like that uh, but life is quite long you have a bunch of time to to try different things and uh we're still young like we it, it's also important like to enjoy those those 20s you know the, those 30s even like or even all your life to be honest like this that's uh, an argument in the book as well like we should give up with all those like uh, societal norms and and structures and like uh at that time in your life you need to do this and this and that um but yeah i guess like um but maybe there would be a topic for for another another book i told you at, at the beginning like uh I already have like too many ideas of like what I want to do next, which is bad. I should like take a moment and like relax and just enjoy the fact that this is done and that I'm promoting it and that everybody's happy to read it and blah, blah, blah. I mean, some aren't obviously, but you know, uh, but yeah. Definitely take your time. Um, mm. Give yourself some credit for the work you've done, but it sounds very exciting. Uh, looking forward to see whatever you come up next. Um, to wrap us up, uh, I want to say that uh, Collapse Feminism by Alice Capel is now out. You can order it. It's an excellent book that helps to connect the online discourses and digital cultures to some of the more prominent series of feminism and gender and to direct our attention to perhaps the narratives of crisis and narratives of traditionalism that we have been seeing a lot online and help us to digest them and to explain them. And if you enjoyed this uh, podcast, uh, subscribe to our community, find Alice Capel and Lazy Woman on socials, Instagram, uh, YouTube, uh, wherever you get the podcasts, and uh, join the community for more uh, cultural analysis content, for more social events and rate our show wherever you get your podcasts alice thank you so much for joining me and for talking about your book in such an insightful manner thank you very much i had such a great time thank you